I have um, had the privilege of knowing Gary for, I think, over 10 years. I don't know how, how long, maybe close to that, maybe more. Um, and he's been walking with the Lord for like 60 <laughs> years, <laughs> at least. He's been around the block like twice. Actually, he walks around the block almost 100 times a day, I think. He's, he walks a lot. Um, my point is, uh, he's okay to listen to. He really is. He knows what he's talking about. <clears throat> Welcome. Uh, you, probably a lot of you are joining us online this morning <laughs> at 9 o'clock. You're like, mm, we have that new digital thing. Let's try that out, honey. We're glad you're here. We're glad we've made a way, uh, no matter what the circumstances are for you, that you can be around and you are a part of the family for sure. Uh, make sure if uh, anything we say, anything we talk about creates a question in your mind, you ask it, find a way to ask. Um, if um, you're part of the family, uh, follow uh, Gary's uh, direction and continue to give. We've got great plans. It rests in large part on your faithful giving. And if you need uh, more encouragement and connection than what you can garner on a Sunday morning, which is often the case, and you're not connected to a group of friends that can provide that, please let us help you with that. Uh, with regard to the building on the northwest side on Franz Road, 5626 Franz Road, we are so, so close. We're getting so close. One of these days I'm going to say we've signed that lease, but our architect has been through uh, what we were are required to do in that building to get it up to the uh, codes that are required for our use are, are less than what we had imagined, probably far less costly. All that's really, really good news. So we will start that process. It'll slow down significant once it gets to Diddy, the Dublin City Hall <laughs> because that's just the way processes work. It's not Dublin in particular. Most cities just take some time to approve uh, architectural plans and give you the go-ahead to, to green light it. So it's unlikely we're going to make our September 12th uh, goal, uh, which basically just gives me four weeks to keep talking about Romans. So uh, we are uh, not going to Romans chapter 5 this week because we didn't finish chapter 6 last week, if you were around. I got a little long-winded at the front end of that message. So we're continuing this week, and I'm going to detour through Acts chapter uh, 17 to get to, uh, in some ways, it's a bit of a recap for, for last week. Um, answered this question, at least I intended to, and maybe in part. Why does the world need the gospel? I mean, a Christian typically travels with the idea that it certainly does. I don't know how often we think about why the world needs the gospel. Why does the world need, as Paul puts it, to be established in Christ. Well, part of the reason I want to look at Acts chapter 17 is um, we begin to see Paul dealing with sort of the, what you would call the non-God people of the world. Like he goes to Athens, where he spent most of his life, although he was a Roman citizen, was in Jerusalem. He was working within the kingdom of God, the people of God. And here is Paul now coming face to face with the non-God world and trying to figure out maybe one of the first people to really truly lead the way in figuring out how to get God and now Jesus into the worldview and into the lives of the people that have no real God perspective. Here's where we pick it up. Verse 16 in Acts chapter 17. While Paul was waiting for them, he, he was bouncing all around uh, the Middle East, all around the Mediterranean, and there had been some trouble where they were, and he was whisked off to Athens without his uh, right-hand men. And when he got there, he immediately said, I need them. Go back and get them and have them join me here. And so while he's waiting for them in Athens... He was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Uh, not too unexpected. Athens is like the New York of the first century, the, the, uh, the London of the first century, the Hong Kong. Of the first, it was very transitory, very metropolitan. It was a trade base, uh, all sorts of different types of people that are bringing all sorts of different types of gods into that space. And so it was probably on one level a very exciting place to go. Paul's walking around and he is distressed because of all the idols, all the statues, et cetera, et cetera, that represent gods. I don't know if you have sculpted statues and carved idols in your house 
or, or where you live in your local community? Probably not. Back in the day, it was not uncommon. You built something that represented your God. We don't typically have them. It doesn't mean we don't have lower G gods, for sure. But we don't typically have sculpted statues and carved idols and temples in which we uh, imagine that our God uh, lives, per se. But this is what he sees in Athens. It was very clear that there was no real understanding of the one true God. So Paul's preaching uh, the good news about the resurrection. This is what he did. He went to cities and he stood up in the, in the, in the, in the arenas where they, where they did that sort of thing. It wasn't that uncommon for a philosopher to stand and, and get the ear of all the other philosophers and people and hear the newest ideas. And so he says... Uh, he's speaking about Jesus and the resurrection, and those that were kind of uh, in power there were saying, hey, you're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we'd like to know what they mean. And Paul, parenthetically, literally parenthetically in the scripture says, all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. And I thought, that's our life right now. We don't go somewhere and listen to it, but we are bombarded with everybody's ideas about this and about that. It is, I I feel the same way. We're just surrounded by ideas. I don't think we realize it, but we're we're surrounded by by gods, all sorts of lowercase gods. We're we're surrounded by uh, uh, these uh, ideas and causes that incline us and compel us to spend our time and our resources and to have our lives revolve around them. And then there's just all kinds of conversation. We, we are very much in the space of the Athenians. Paul stands up in one of the, one of the most famous philosophical debate spaces of the, of the ancient world and says, people of Athens... I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. So, he says, rather sensationally, you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And so let me proclaim to you. You see where Paul's saying, all these idols, and there's even one that says to an unknown God. They had all their bases covered. They were praying to all the gods, even the ones they didn't know. And Paul says, you don't know what's going on. You don't really know who God is. So I'm going to tell you. In verse 24 of Acts chapter 17, Paul says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He says, there is a God. He is above all other gods. He made the world and everything in it. And he doesn't live in temples built by human hands. He goes on, he says, he's not served by humans' hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. See, they had all these gods, and one of them gave them life, and one of them gave them breath, and one of them gave them this, and one of them was responsible for that, and one of them uh, they revered for this, and one of them they feared for that. And he said, no, listen, there's one God, and he gives life, and he gives breath, and everything else. One God. And from one man, he made all the nations. He marked out all their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. Paul goes on, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. And he throws this at him, though he is not far from any one of us. He says, God created everything. And he has appointed each person within it, who they are, where they live. I remember one time I was talking to my friend, Pastor Dan, we partner with in Africa, and we've helped them build numerous churches of which they have a thriving, growing community. It's beautiful. And one day I was having some particular, maybe, insecurities about 
uh, the nature and the blessings and the possessions and the material uh, uh, you know, situation that I live in versus the one he lives in. And I was making commentary about that, I'm sure. We're, we're, we're like brothers. We've been known each other for couple, almost a decade and a half. And he said, Pastor Mike, uh, God had you born there and me born here, and God's given me this, and he's given you that. That's just the way it is. God's appointed our lives. He's appointed our lives, and what is his hope for us? That we would reach out to him. That they would understand that he's close to us. We don't have to beat our brow. We don't have to go through some ritual. We don't have to pray extravagantly to get God to come near. He is near. He's there. He's present. What he longs for is us to reach back to him. Paul says God can't be contained in our creations. He can't be represented by the carvings and the idols and the statues of our lives. He can't be contained within the buildings that we build. He can't even be contained within our understanding of him. He can't be contained even in our theologies. He is beyond vast. Paul says, nor does he need us. He is utterly self-sufficient and everything that is flows from him. Paul's given them a beautiful, succinct worldview that has God at the center of it. He reminds them that he's personal, that he's totally sufficient. He's not whimsical. He's not, he's not uh, manipulated by what we do, right? We, we, we tend to think, you know, if I, if I give like the church is asking me to give, then God will be kind to me. If I, if I don't give, God will be unkind to me. It's like, no, no, no. That's not the way it works. God doesn't need you, and he is who he is apart from what you do. He's completely self-sufficient. Everything flows from him. And then he throws this at him. And some of your poets have even said, and they're right, Paul commends them, we are his offspring. To the Jew, that wouldn't be that unfamiliar of a thought. They would be descendants from Abraham. They are, they are the people of God. They understand that they are, um, in their sensibilities, even biologically related to God. But remember who Paul's talking to. Not just Jews. Athenians. He addresses people of Athenia. He's connecting all people to God. I'm certain that Paul would be thinking of words from the Torah. Words and passages that he had memorized verbatim. Particularly, God created mankind. God created mankind in his own image. Didn't say God created the Jews. In man he did, but it's bigger than that. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. Paul goes on and says, Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. Paul says, he's not below you. He doesn't inhabit what you create. He's not made by us. He's not in need of us. He isn't controlled by us. That's just arrogance on our part that we can manipulate God, that we can represent him in what we carve. He's, he's not like that. He's, he's beyond that. God is the ruler of all. 
the creator of all. He is supreme over everything. Anything that is, it is because of him. Anything that lives, lives because of him. It is utterly arrogant to think otherwise. And Paul says, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now, he commands all people everywhere. So who does that include? <laughs> Is he being clear to them? I'm not just talking to the people of God as you know them. He now commands all people everywhere to repent. To realize that you're wrong and out of alignment with God. And Paul starts to move toward the gospel. He says, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to everyone. Proof of what? He's given proof that he's going to judge. God's given proof that there is an eternity. God's given proof that he has a son. He's given proof that he was incarnate. How? By, Paul says, raising him from the dead. Paul stood up and said, there is one God. He has revealed himself. He has revealed eternity and he has revealed the way back to him in his son. It's the gospel. Why does the world need the gospel? Because the people of this world are the offspring of God. They are his image bearers. We are inclined toward God, but we tend to pursue in very practical, religious ways, other causes, other gods, other passions. We need the gospel because we are inclined toward God, but we don't know how to get there. I tried to capture this in what is maybe just a too wordy of a run-on sentence. But see if you can track with this. Humanity embodies a transcendent essence. Okay, we are eternal souls created in the image of God. We have, a, we have an essence within us. Remember what C.S. Lewis says? You don't have a soul. You are a soul. You have a body. We are a transcendent being. We are the offspring of God. We, we are a soul. And that soul thirsts and grasps for the associated purpose, meaning, and value. You, are you, you catch what I mean? We are a transcendent soul. We are a soul. And we are in search of the associated meaning and purpose of an eternal soul. The things of this world don't really do it. But we try our brains and our hearts out to make it do it for us. We all know this story. It is so cliche, but we know it. We know the people that have gained it all. They've risen to the top. They have everything they want, and they are still not satisfied. Some of you may have that story yourself, at least to some degree. But if you don't, we know it's true. We are transcendent essence, and it is reflected in our deep attachment to any of an abundance of global causes. That's our world right now. We aren't surrounded by carved statues and idols, but we are surrounded by global, because of, because of technology and the global nature of the causes that we are in many ways passionate about seem transcendent because they're global. And our eternal souls tilt toward those and become deeply attached And those causes are grounded in this sort of pseudo-revelation that the world is universally broken. 
almost every cause you will find points to some sort of human brokenness that is universal. And every generation that comes along in this world thinks they discover that. It's been true since the beginning of time. But these attachments, these causes, these gods and idols that that we get involved with are grounded in a very true reality that humanity is broken. And then all of this happens within the context of a God that is continually marginalized as every generation comes and goes. God gets pushed further and further away. So people are um, engaging. They're being raised in a world and engaging a world without a God-centered context like what Paul is providing here. And so it is very easy to move towards something of this world as our God in order to connect our transcendent eternal souls with it. Why does the world need the gospel? It needs the gospel because only the gospel is truly transcendent. Only the gospel's cause, if you will, speaks from a truly transcendent place. It is the only cause that truly understands, is enlightened regarding the true nature of human brokenness. And the gospel cause is the only cause that offers purpose, meaning, and value that is of a trans, truly transcendent nature. And then this is the last thing about my little definition about why the world needs the gospel. It is radically independent of human effort. Okay, <laughs> right? This is, this is, in many ways, the distinctive characteristic of the gospel cause from the perspective of the world. Like we understand that the gospel is about Jesus and what he did and what he provides and what he's provided and what he does. But from the world's point of view, what is going to be and should be distinct about the gospel is radically independent of human effort. I'm going to try to explain what that means. What is this distinguishing, compelling thing about the gospel. I would say it this way. It is that element of why the world needs the gospel is going to be the way that we win, for lack of a better word, alongside all the other causes, is that it is independent of human effort. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. I brought this up last week, so we were going to come back to it. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? you got to think about that criticism for a minute. That's a criticism that Paul is getting as he's preaching. Wherever he preaches, he's catching this. People are responding to the gospel with this criticism. Are you saying, Paul, that we should just go on sinning? I asked you this question last week. How often do you share about your religion? Do you share about your life? Do you share about Jesus? And people respond to you by saying, are you saying I can just keep on sinning? I think they should. I think we should present Christ in such a way that people misunderstand what we're saying. Because that is the most compelling point of the gospel. It sounds like we're saying we should go on sinning. The gospel is somehow initially misunderstood to be licensed to sin. And I think, on camera, the church should be misunderstood to the world that needs Christ by saying, You have license. We don't say you have license to sin, but the way we say it should make people think that. That's what we're saying. Listen to Paul in Romans chapter 8. 
We've covered this because we're going backwards. Therefore, speaking of the gospel, the God, he gives the gospel. Therefore, G- Jesus and all that happened with Jesus, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation. You know there are, do you know there are Christians that are failing morally? You're aware of that, right? You have mirrors in your house, do you not? You're not cutting it. Neither am I. But in Christ, there is no condemnation. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, this is again, this is still Romans 8, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. The law brings sin and death. That code is what shows us that we're sinful. And because of that, we are condemned. But through Christ, we've been set free. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh. The law was supposed to make us obey God if we just follow the law. But instead, the law was, we're unable to meet the law, so we stand condemned. What the law could not do, God did by sending his own son. In the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met. What God requires of people, they cannot do. But he has fully met the requirements of the law in Jesus. And what should your friends say next? Doesn't that mean that I can just go on sinning? There is now no condemnation. If Christ does what's necessary for people to avoid condemnation, then what is to keep a person in check? Isn't it on some level ridiculous for God to remove the personal, eternal consequences of moral failure? What sense does that make? How could God ever bring about righteousness in the world, holy living among his people, if there are no consequences? And herein lies the misunderstanding that drives anemic, powerless, uncreative, uneffectual Christianity. This misunderstanding means Christianity sits right next to all the other causes and actually isn't even a compelling cause to get involved with because we do not understand what it's about. It is this misunderstanding that makes Christianity just another thing. The misunderstanding is this. That the aim of God is to keep our lives in check. To modify our behavior. To govern our behavior. That is not the aim of God. We can get nowhere in this world. We can get nowhere with the gospel. We can get nowhere with the transformation that God wants to make in our lives if we don't realize it is a complete and utter misunderstanding to think God's aim is to change your behavior. The gospel distinctive, the thing that makes the gospel attractive to the world The thing that makes the gospel the gospel is it's not performance-based. It isn't accurate for a Christian to say, I can live however I want. That is not accurate. But 
it is fair and critical to say, I will not suffer the condemnation or eternal consequences of my moral insufficiencies and failures when they occur. In fact, the more I fail in Christ, the more grace I find. It is unending. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? This is the very first place anybody you're trying to teach the gospel to, you're trying to communicate it to, they should, you should lead them here first. Who <laughs> wouldn't want to know more about this? You're telling me I can just keep living my life the way I want to? You're telling me I can, I can stop working so hard to try to resist these urges and I can just go for it because there's just gonna, I'm just going to find grace if I'm a Christian? The deeper question is, why have condemnation and eternal consequences, call it tough love, if you will, been set aside for the believer? Because the consequences of sin don't bring about God's aim. Most Christians, many Christians, I should say many Christians, how about this, too many Christians are following Moses, not actually following Jesus. Moral policing and holy livings seems to us to have been Moses' aim along with the full support of the Ten Commandments. But better behavior has never been God's aim, not even in the Old Testament. The prophet Hosea, speaking for God, says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I, I, I desire your heart to be compassionate, not all of your rituals. You do all of these things for me. I just want your heart to care about people. <laughs> I don't need your, this behavior. I don't need all this religion. An acknowledgement, Hosea says, of God rather than burnt offerings. And Jesus would tell you it wasn't intended to be Moses' aim either. either. Jesus said to the Pharisees of his time who were obedient to the law to a degree that was really, you were unable to find error. These were the, these were the heroes of the Jewish people. And Jesus says, woe to you. Big problem here. Teachers of the law and Pharisees you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs. You're like a tomb. It's real, real pretty on the outside, but in the inside are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. <laughs> you leaders of my people are gross inside. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. If God was into obedience, if Jesus was into obedience, these guys, he would have praised them. There was nobody more obedient. Nobody. God's aim is clearly not to have your performance or your good behavior covering over all of your selfish motives. It's nice. It's very nice. Trust me, we all want each other to not live out of the negativity and the wickedness within your heart. <laughs> That's nice for society. Keep doing that. Keep being kind when you want to be mean. Yes, of course. But this is not God's aim. He wants you to have a pure heart. When the Bible talks about heart, it's talking about you. 
not an organ that pumps blood, and not the seat of your emotions like we think about it. When God talks about the heart, he talks about you. It would be better to say soul, your soul. You, who you are. I want you, you, not your behavior, you to be pure of heart. I want you to be healed in your heart. The good life follows and flows from the new heart. God doesn't want to change your behavior. He wants to heal your soul, to heal your heart. God wants you to trust him truly, to love him deeply, to obey his ways, of of course, from your heart. Y'all watching The Chosen? Traditionally, typically, almost by rule, I don't get along or enjoy Christian media. Too often misses the point. It's not very good. <laughs> and I gotta, as a Christian, I have to be excited about it. <laughs> oh, you got to go see this movie. And I'm thinking, please don't see that movie. I'm not like that. No one's, it's not what, the chosen, they are killing it. It is so good. So good. It's a miracle. It is a miracle in my mind. Honestly, every week I'm like, oh, they're going to blow it eventually. There's just no way they can keep this up. It is, for all intents and purposes, theologically spot on exactly what we're talking about. There's this wonderful episode where Mary, who's following him along with the other disciples, falls away. She has a a moment of weakness and she falls uh, back into or near what she was rescued from with Jesus. And her friends literally go and find her and drag her back. And she is broken, disappointed in herself, embarrassed, shamed. And when she's talking to Jesus, she's like, I can't come back. I blew it. This is who I am. I'm just not. I can't. I mean, I don't remember all the words. And Jesus depicted really perfectly from what the scriptures tell us, looks at her and says, Mary, I want your heart. What's your heart? I showed you a picture, or at least described a picture to you. We might have a picture now of a magnet. And if you imagine that the magnet is God, God has a way that things are supposed to be right and good. And you can imagine that that way of God, that law of God, is the force field that comes from a magnet. It's really some of the best ways that we understand who God is, is that he actually has a way. If you think yourself as a little metal filing, I really think there is a picture somewhere at CGI. I don't know if you can find it, but there should be one there. Um, If you think of yourself as one of the metal filings, you've probably seen a picture or maybe you've had a little toy or something as a kid where you put the magnet and all the metal filings sort of line up and they show you where that force field is. We are the metal filings. And the reality is while we are in the flesh, we don't line up. That would be, that's heaven, this perfect alignment in the force field and the law of God. But we don't. In the flesh, we are gripped by something. And what God is essentially saying is, even when you think you are all lined up, you're not. But that's okay. In Christ, you are. And I just want your heart Even when you're out of alignment with me and my law, I want your heart. God's aim is to have your heart. And the first step is to expose it. And the second step is to free it. God's moral law does provide the code for civilized society. 
And its primary intent, though, is to show us how ungodly we actually are. In Romans chapter 7, Paul said, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. The law, the obedience, the moral code of God shows us that we are not within the law. And if we're honest and we're humble, we recognize that we are insufficient. We fail. And Jesus raises the bar by clarifying the deeper expectation is that your heart would be right. Remember, Jesus said, yeah, you shouldn't murder. Absolutely should not murder. But I don't want you to be angry. And what does the Christian think? The typical solution to that is mosaic. When I'm angry, I don't show my anger. I do something not angry instead, and that makes me a Christian. No, it does not. That makes you a moral person. A Christian is one who is not angry. How do we do that? How do we do that? We have to be changed. God says, I want your heart. I don't even want you to be angry. You are not living up to the law when your heart is wrong. And now we're stuck. As people, we're like, well, then I'm in big trouble. Sometimes I can behave properly, but I cannot control the jealousies, the comparisons, the angers, the bitterness in my heart. I can't control that. I can't control that, so there's no way. All I can do is pretend not to be that way. And that's not what a Christian is. But you are right. Ephesians reminds us. Paul reminds us in Ephesians. We are dead in our transgressions. We are shackled to sinfulness. But what we've learned is that in Christ, God condemns sin and forgives you, effectively removes the grip of sin and the eternal consequence of your sinful heart and implants, this is important, implants his spirit, his DNA within you. You are now no longer sinful at the core. God has condemned that. It died with Jesus. We die with Jesus. Sin dies. Now we are renewed. We now have the spirit of God at our core. And that spirit within you, at the center of the Christian, does long for God, longs to love God, longs to obey God. And so now our role is to stay in step with who we have been made to be. Romans chapter 6, verse 6. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to that sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin in Jesus. Now he says in verse 22, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin are death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's grace is the cornerstone, and it is unrelated to human effort. It is a gift that we lay hold of by faith. And now we are attached to the one in whom we are now free to live according to him. Through Jesus, God lifts the oppression of inevitable, exhausting human insufficiency in finding God and peace in all of these other places. It lifts the oppression of trying to manufacture a good and pure heart and instead mercifully offers it as a gift. It is radically independent of human effort We now have no condemnation 
in God's eyes, no eternal consequences in Christ, and we have nothing to do with it. You can't earn it. You actually can't lose it. You can't earn it with your behavior. You can't lose it with your behavior. You have it by faith. Those that are far from God are suffering souls. Those that do not know Christ, their soul is suffering and it's playing out in sad, broken, dark ways. It's experienced as emptiness. And so the transcendent soul searches by its own effort to find a solution. It isn't to be found. It's to be received. It isn't to be worked for. It is to be gained by faith. They are searching for a cause. Those that are far from God are looking to give themselves to something greater than themselves. To give themselves to something that transcends all of this of their life to alleviate the suffering, but they are shackled to sin. They can only do good things. They cannot be truly good. And they know it. You've known it. I've known it. I can do good things, but I know I'm not truly good. Nothing on this earth can change that. And those others that are far from God have got to be forefront on our minds, but they are a topic for another day because of this. The church has got to get better at living in the gospel. That means you and me need to be more rooted. We need to be established in the gospel. It does very little good for us to lease buildings, invite ones to come, and try to be on mission to bring health and healing to the world if we don't live according to the answer we claim to have. And by and large, the Christian church says, come in here and we will teach you how to be good. And the world's not having it anymore because they know us. And they think, you're no better than me. In fact, they look at the church and say, you're not even as good as me. You aren't even involved in your world. You're sequestered in your little Christian bubbles. I'm actually doing something to try to help the world. You're not even as good as me. I'm not coming in there to have you teach me how to be good. And we've got to stop making that our message. We have to remember, Christianity is not behavioral at its core. And so we cannot lead people to Christ strictly by our behavior, right? People aren't going to know you're a Christian strictly by your behavior. They're going to, well... They have a better chance of knowing you're a Christian by your bad behavior, to be quite honest. Because when your behavior is bad, you can say, yeah, but I'm good. There is no condemnation in God's eyes. In Christ, I am not going to be suffering eternal consequences of my moral failure. Tell me, tell me again that's not going to get somebody's attention. That is far different. Performance is not the aim. It is the evidence of the aim. The aim is transformation of the heart. Let me say it again. Performance is not the aim. Performance is the evidence of how well the aim is coming along in transformation of the heart. You can see the heart by the performance, but the performance is not the aim. It is a fruit of the aim. Performance exposes the heart. The law is a mirror to the heart. 
Jesus said, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them. I've come to fulfill them. I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers, they were perfect. Jesus says, no, I need your righteousness to exceed, exceed that. That only means one thing. It has to be deeper, not higher. So let me finish with a little checklist for you. Because here is the irony of this message. What in the world is the practical application for a message where behavior is not the aim? What do I tell you to do so that you can get in touch with the fact that Christianity is not primarily about what you do? What is the practical application for that? There is some. First of all, pray. Because again, the first step is to recognize that your heart is actually bad. Don't be deceived by your own good behavior. Be like David. Go into the space of God and say, search me and know me. Identify all the wicked ways within me. Open your hands and pray to God. Open the scriptures and and look at the law. Of course, read the Ten Commandments. Do it. Read the Ten Commandments. And then remember what Jesus said about the commandments. Look deeper at yourself. Do it. Pray to God. Say, show me the condition of my heart. That's the first step. Don't be deceived by your own good behavior. Read the scriptures. Pray. Open yourself up to hear from God about your heart. And then watch for these things in your life. Write a few of these down. Comparison. When you're comparing yourself to another person, any other person, particularly a Christian, you are and might be living from a performance-based life. It's deceptive. It's insidious. It's wicked. You've probably compared yourself to people already this morning. There's something wrong there. That is performance-based. Judgment. You find yourself looking at somebody else going, hmm, well, they need some work. They're not very good. When we judge, again, you may be right. I'm not saying you're not right. That may not be good. But what are you doing? When you... That's performance. You judge people, you might be living a performance-based life. Shame. You're carrying around a lot of shame. For what? Something you did. Right? Something you did. Something you thought. You're carrying around shame for an extended period of time. I say that because there's things that we do that, things that I do that I'm ashamed of. I should be. When you start carrying that shame beyond the reality of it being a mirror and going, ooh, that's bad, you might be living a performance-based life. Seeking praise, we're good at that too. We don't go, hey, need your praise. We don't do that. Hey, don't you love what I just did? No, it just... It's just sitting on the table when they come over. Oh, this. Oh, yeah. You know, I, you, we, you looking for praise? Do you need it? You might be living a performance-based life. You find yourself working overtime to protect your reputation. We were driving on a rocky dirt path in Africa. Um, Adam Heath was with me. We're sitting in the back, you know, we're going to some church to visit it. And we, I look out my window, and there is a guy that was riding a bicycle with a huge basket of uh, maize on it. All, it was all shocked away, all just like, you know, corn, just corn, corn little things. What do you call those? Kernels, right? They had fallen off his bike, and they were everywhere. His basket was here, and the corn was here. And he was like, he was picking up some corn and walking over to the basket putting it in. I was like, stop, stop, stop. We got to help this guy. He'll never get done with this, even if he did it right. So we pulled the basket over to start, and we started putting 
And then people were going by on their bikes and walking, and I could tell it was negative. And I was like, what's going on? Pastor Dan goes, they think you knocked him off his bike. (laughs) They think you're the bad guy. And I was like, oh, I thought by doing this, we were going to send a message. (laughs) And Adam goes, don't worry, Mike. Jesus never worried about his own reputation. We don't have to worry about ours. I was like, Adam, shut up. (laughs) I'm tired of you doing in one sentence what I can't quite do in 40 minutes. Self-punishment. I'm an expert at this. I'm never happy with my execution. I'm never happy with my process. I'm never happy with what I produce. I'm never happy with what I do. And so I beat myself up all the time. Do you do that? You might be living a performance-based life. And I'm going to throw all these three into the mix together. Hiding, faking, lying. We hide a lot, we fake a lot, we lie a lot. Why? Because we want people to see what we've done. You're hiding, you're faking, you're lying. You are living a performance-based life. So what do you do? Let me ask you, what do you do? What is your natural inclination? Let's say you're a comparer. What do you do? What's your first thing you're going to do? Stop comparing, right? Stop judging. Stop beating myself up. Stop feeling shame. We turn this recognition of what we're doing wrong into a list of do's. The last and final example of we might be living a performance-based life is the solution to our performance-based life is a higher level of performance. So I ask you again, what is the practical application? (laughs) Someone tell me, what is the practical application? No way, I am not minus 26 minutes over. That's a lie. I am somewhere in that neighborhood, I think. I don't know. I want you to imagine you're at the top of a very pointy, steep mountain. It's slippery. It's solid ice. You're standing at the top of it. In fact, you can't step on the top of it. You are immediately going to fall down one side or the other. And one side is the side of condemnation. It is your performance is never good enough and you are condemned. You condemn yourself and you feel condemned by God with what you do. The other side is pride. You actually succeed. You actually don't condemn. You don't judge. You do not beat yourself up anymore. Look at me. You are sliding down onto the pride side. Those are the only two options in life when it comes to behavior, condemnation or pride. The only way to stay at the top of that mountain is to hang on to the cross. And that is the practical application. When you compare, when you judge, when you seek praise, when you protect your reputation, when you self-punish, when you hide, when you fake, when you break a commandment, when you see your heart as it truly is, take your findings and your feelings to God, established in Christ, and remember, there is now no condemnation. I am forgiven. And the Spirit of God wants to transform my heart into something else. Go to God on your face and say, I see my heart. I'm sorry. And spend as much time as you can possibly spare enjoying the grace of God, remembering that he has freed you from it, there is no condemnation, and that his spirit wants to live out of your heart and change your behavior. Allow his spirit to enter your heart through the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus. And walk, never walk out of that space. Are you with me? Don't walk out of that space. But when you walk out of that space, know that the Spirit of God is now alive in you more now than it was before. Your behavior is going to change because the Spirit is more alive in you now. You are established in Christ. Now you have a shot. Take your findings and your feelings to God established in Christ. In Jesus, we are forgiven and filled and healed When you realize you're performance-based, go to God. Fully established in Christ and all that that means.
then and only then can we be on true mission to introduce those that are far from God to the true Jesus and true life. God, thank you for Paul. Thank you for scripture. Thank you most of all for your son in whom we are established, forgiven, free, and filled by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Thank you for being with us online. Um, We will see you next week. All y'all, thank you so much for being here in purpose. Before you leave, would you say hello to Katawa? She's got a few special words for you. Many of us are running out the door uh, over to the Northwest where we have a service over there and a gathering. So thank you for being here. I will see you soon.